this was about as bizarre and as easy as it gets. So the number for me was a number that would allow me to never have to work. I feel like we got top, top, top. I went from a sale of you know five hundred thousand dollars to in debt. One hundred ninety-two million dollars. This is Built to Sell Radio with your host John Warlow. So once a year, you go to the doctor, right? They take your blood pressure, maybe they prick your finger and they take a little blood and they give you a sense of your cholesterol level. Maybe if you go to one of those fancy healthcare facilities, they get you to run on a treadmill for a while, see how your heart's doing. You get a checkup. The same thing should be true of your business. When we look at your business through the Value Builder score, we're going to look at it through eight key drivers that acquirers care about. Whether you want to sell your business immediately or in 10, 20 years from now, these are the eight factors that business buyers care about. Knowing them now will help you maximize the value of your business going forward. Just go to valuebuilder.com and take the questionnaire. Next up, you're going to hear from Boyd Davis. Man, lots of Lots of good stuff here. Boyd had a consulting company and the aspiration to be a product company. So if your goal is to move from sort of service to product, listen up. Boyd's got some great tips for that, including how product companies and particular software product companies are valued versus their consulting brothers and sisters. So some interesting information there. Boyd talks a lot about uh, how he financed the business using an interesting company called Decathlon, which I personally never heard of, so I found that part of the discussion uh, really unique. He talks about a debt instrument, and I'll I'll let him describe that uh, as he goes. He talked about how he valued the acquisition that he made to start the business, uh, which is really uh, quite fascinating. how they used some of the, the lingo of the day, uh, terms like artificial intelligence, um, you know, machine learning and big data, all these sort of buzzwords, and you'll get Boyd's perspective on the use of those terms. Um, the beginning of the interview, I warn you, has a fairly technical angle to it for the first maybe 30 seconds, so just bear with us as we get through that, but once we get into it, I think you'll find uh, the discussion to be very accessible uh, and rich with insight about how to sell a company which is both product and service business. Here to tell you the rest of the story is Boyd Davis. Boyd Davis, welcome to Built to Sell Radio. Good to be here. So tell me about this company, Cogentix. Am I pronouncing it correctly, by the way? Yeah, Cogentix. Yeah, that's right. Cogentix. Uh, kind of a cool... Yeah, most people struggle with the spelling after they hear the, the term. You can imagine the kinds of spellings I've heard. Yeah. Uh, so Cogentix was uh, founded in the uh, uh, early part of 2015. Um, uh, it was me and three co-founders. Uh, and uh, we, we really had a vision that the kind of emerging distributed platforms uh, originating with Hadoop and then migrating to the cloud with solutions like Amazon's EMR and, uh, and Microsoft's HD Insights and the Google Cloud Platform would really um, unlock the capabilities of data when you applied a combination of that data management with advanced analytics and machine learning and artificial intelligence algorithms to drive business outcomes. So we set out to build a company that would help uh, mostly larger organizations uh, leverage their data and and create business value by, um, you know, aggregating the data, uh, wrangling the data, uh, turning it into insights through advanced analytics, and then deploying those insights to make a business impact. 
Um, so and that's you, what we got to that all sounds great for a technology geek, of which I'm not. So help me understand it in a layman's terms. Like, can you give me an example of, you know, like Ford hired us to do X or General Electric hired us to do Y? Like, I'd love to put some meat on the bones to kind of make it s- make sense to people who are not super technical. When you say the cloud, sure. they think of the thing in the sky, not the thing the computer geeks talk about. <laughs> sure, sure, sure. Um, you know, and we, most of our customers view the work we did with them as a, a significant competitive advantage. Uh, so then as now, I can't give you a specific client example uh, and tell you the use case, but I can kind of give you an analogy and, and sure. give you a sense of the kind of work we did. Uh, so the analogy is something that's very familiar to virtually everybody is when you go to Amazon and you buy something, uh, they'll have a also recommended for you. Or when you go to Netflix and watch a movie, uh, they'll have, hey, be, be, you, you, if you like this movie, you might like this other one. That's basically taking the data of your behavior, comparing it to the data of behavior of people that are like you, uh, and saying, hey, you're likely to like this other thing because uh, somebody like you liked it. Um, and, and that's actually, it turns out to be, uh, you know, that's a, a well-established practice on internet services. Uh, and it turns out to be a little bit easier for internet companies because all of their data is already digital. Um, it's already formatted in a way that it's kind of easier to gain those insights. What we wanted to do was make that available to consumer goods companies, people that sell groceries, uh, people that um, were in the business of uh, selling banking uh, services. Uh, that challenge is much bigger because the data they gather on the behavior of their customers comes from a lot of different sources. Maybe it's when you call up uh, the bank and you've, you have inquiries about your account. Uh, maybe it's when you visit the, the branch and have a transaction. Uh, in the case of, of consumer packaged goods companies, when you, you know, they're, they're kind of removed from their customers. They have to look at things like uh, Nielsen spending data and transaction data from the retailers. Uh, that's a very complex problem. Uh, so what we basically did was apply some of those modern internet techniques to a bigger range of data so that uh, organizations could understand their customers better, anticipate their needs better, um, communicate that with them more effectively, engender greater loyalty, and drive greater profits. So it's really a very similar kind of approach to what people are used to seeing on the web but um, it becomes much more complex when you have to aggregate data from a lot of different uh, interactions. It sounds in particular where there are multiple channels involved, like you Absolutely. could go into a grocery store, you could buy online, you could buy over the phone, you, you know, and then uh, trying, to, trying to, 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 to identify that customer through the various different channels they choose to buy from must be a real challenge. And then also engaging them in those same channels. So we talk a lot about omni-channel customer engagement uh, and a full customer. There you go. Sounded like a geek again, Boyd. Come on, omni-channel customer (laughs) engagement. That's exactly what you said. Multiple channels. Omni-channel means all channels. And and, uh, and getting a really, really clear understanding of of customers. Um, You're going to make me so much smarter in the next hour. I can't wait. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, I think it's why there's so much uh, excitement, um, def- definitely a little bit of hype around artificial yeah. intelligence. And the kind of artificial intelligence we applied was not the, the, the science fiction stuff where the robots take over the world. It was relatively mundane things of, of um, very narrowly using the data 
uh, at scale to uh, understand how to engage customers better. We also did some other kinds of work to do things like optimize transportation networks and uh, predict failures on large trucks. And there's a lot of other applications of the same principle, but fundamentally it's about gathering a bunch of data, uh, applying math to it, uh, gaining some insights from, from that data and that math, and then using those insights to try to change a behavior so that you can either engage your customers more effectively or lower your cost of operations or increase your service uptime. You know, that's, that's basically the, the idea of modern AI in practice for large organizations. That's helpful. The four of you that came together to form this company, how did you uh, know one another? Did you know one another you know, before? Did you work in a previous company? How did you all kind of coalesce together? Yeah, actually, um, I uh, spent a big chunk of my early career, actually most of my career at Intel Corporation. And uh, while I was at Intel, I uh, ran a software business that was building a distribution of Apache Hadoop. Uh, so similar to the work that Cloudera Hortonworks does today. Uh, and through the course of that, we knew that we needed to help customers get value out of the software technology uh, so I acquired a small consulting firm out of Chicago that was actually founded by my other three co-founders. Um, Intel chose to take a little bit of a different direction in their, in their strategy. So ultimately, we all left, um, but we still had kind of a very similar vision of using these modern open source distributed technologies to help customers get value out of their data. Uh, so we got together and formed Cogenta. When you say you acquired, do you mean you personally acquired or you? Intel. Being Intel they, I see. Intel acquired the consulting firm and it happened to be, I happened to be the general manager of the sponsoring business unit for that acquisition. That's helpful. How did you value that consultancy? Oh, interesting. This was, um, uh, you know, we, we drove a valuation that was based uh, some on revenue. Uh, and then that consulting firm was small enough that we also could uh, value it uh, purely from a talent acquisition perspective. Uh, so there's a number of, of ways to, to value companies. I've been on now on both sides. I've been an acquirer and, and been acquired. And, um, you know, from the acquirer's perspective, uh, we didn't value uh, that company's clients so much, although they were they were a nice uh, value added. We really value the talent. Uh, so in the realm of acquisitions, that was a, a little bit more of a talent acquisition. Um, and, uh, and the talent acquisitions are really, really dependent on the market environment. And so I've heard of these aqua hires, I guess Google is kind of most famous for making these aqua hires. Is there any sort of formula you would, you would put on, I've heard, you know, an AI, for example, it's, it's, you know, a, f a few hundred to high hundreds of thousands of dollars per employee. Is it like, are you on an aqua hire? Are you valuing like on a per head basis? And if so, like, how do you figure yes, out what? Absolutely. You're, ex you're exactly right. Um, okay. You know, there's a lot of different ways to view uh, acquisitions. You could be acquiring revenue, you could be acquiring intellectual property, or you could be acquiring talent or some mix of those things. Uh, but when you, when the, the valuation driver is the people, then it becomes a revenue or a, a, uh, a price per head kind of thing. And the numbers you talked about are, 
are kind of consistent. Obviously, they vary greatly by uh, the uh, uniqueness and demand for the skills in the market. Right. And, and it, I, it occurs to me that it's, it's got to be a relatively no, low number per head, because, uh, maybe not, but because I guess the competitive set would be to hire Hydrogen Struggles or whatever top tier recruiting firm is out there, pay them 30% of the first year's salary and, and, and go hire the talent. Uh, is that the, comp- like, is that the, uh, you know, plan B if you can't make the aqua hire or aqu- uh, the acquisition? Um, I, you know, interesting. I mean, it, this was, uh, this was several years ago that mm-hmm. we made this acquisition. Um, one of the things you don't get with that model of hiring one at a time is a functioning team. And, and that matters. You know, we had a, a team of, of, we, you know, when, when Intel acquired, uh, the companies of my three, the company of my three co-founders, which was called Extreme Insights, um, you know, they had a leadership team. They had uh, a hierarchy of talent uh, from senior architects down to uh, lower level of developers, and they'd proven to be effective as a team. Uh, and we, so it wasn't just a hiring, you know, we didn't hire them and integrate them into some larger organization and have them managed in a different way. Uh, that's why it wasn't kind of what I think of as a pure aqua hire. And very few aqua hires of that nature are, are that pure where you just kind of pull the people in and, and it's just like you, you paid for a recruiting firm or something. Um, it really is you're, you're acquiring a functioning team. Uh, and that's, that's a lot more valuable than just uh, acquiring a collection of individuals who have a certain skill set. So let me see if I follow the story along here. So you're at Intel, um, you buy Extreme Insights, the, where these three co-founders are working, our founders. Um, at some point, Intel goes in a different direction. And then do, does Intel sell you the company back, essentially? Or do you, do no, you start? No, we, uh, we worked there for a period of time, different periods of time. I left actually quite short, shortly after uh, Intel made an equity investment in Cloudera. Um, which was the big change in direction is to not do it themselves, basically to make an external investment. Uh, I left and I, I took a job as a chief operating officer of another startup. Um, my colleagues, my, what I think of now as my close friends, mm. uh, they stuck around for a while longer. Uh, and then ultimately, I think they all decided there wasn't, um, you know, there wasn't really the career path that they wanted because of the change in direction. So they left uh, and, you know, I think we were all spent a a year or two kind of figuring out now, probably not two years, but a little over a year trying to figure out what we were going to go do next. And, and then the idea coalesced to pull the company together. And so how did you guys finance the business? So four partners, did you kind of each kick in some money and each take a quarter of the business basically, or how did you guys figure out? Exactly. We didn't take any outside capital. We bootstrapped ourselves. Um, we were, uh, very, uh, fortunate or some combination of good luck and talent to, uh, uh, get some early clients who helped us scale the business very rapidly. Um, so early on, we didn't really have a need for external capital. And um, did that change in, as you progressed? Yes. Yeah. I think what is we, we kind of started out uh, doing, uh, we set out to be a software and services company uh, with an emphasis on software. 
but our, our product concepts were, were not fully formed when we founded the company. So our early work was all consulting. And um, as we formed a, a vision for the, the software offering that we ultimately brought to market, um, you know, we started making an investment in that software product. And at that point, uh, scaling the consulting business and building the software product uh, made us believe that we needed um, uh, a capital infusion. And um, so we started looking at options for capital. Uh, we looked at venture capital, private equity, uh, some, some various uh, debt instruments. We ultimately chose a very interesting debt instrument to help scale the business. Uh, and, um, and then ultimately, we got to a point where we felt, I mean, I think the, the purpose of this, of this discussion is, why did we come to sell? And we yeah. decided to sell because uh, the options for raising the level of capital that we needed to really compete in the space um, were not materializing. Uh, we were doing really well. We were growing fast. We had a profitable business. Uh, we had the right strategy. But um, at that point in time, some of our software competitors were, were raising just um, astronomical sums of, of venture money, tens and tens of millions of dollars of venture money. And we knew that that arms race was going to be very difficult to keep up with uh, because we had this combination of a software and, a, and, and, and consulting business model. So when we got to a point where we realized that there were no attractive uh, capital options, that's when we, we started saying, hey, we'd be better off if we um, partnered or sold ourselves to a larger organization so we could continue the vision of being a market leader. We didn't want to just have a, a nice boutique um, you know, uh, business that you, know, you could think of as um, you know, kind of a backyard business. We really wanted to have a significant impact on the market. And, um, and that, that really meant that it, at, we had really two choices, either sell the company or, or find the capital. And when we, we just came to the conclusion that the capital options weren't going to be workable, that's when we decided to sell. Help me square the circle. If other folks are raising a ton of money in the venture capital markets for competitive products, why couldn't you well, it was really a function of the business model. Um, as we started competing in software, uh, the bulk of our revenues were still consulting. Uh, the, the companies that were raising the venture money were more pure play software companies. Uh, venture capitalists don't like, um, you know, kind of hybrid business models. They don't like the consulting model. It doesn't scale well. Uh, and the consultant people that would invest in and or uh, fund in some sort of way, potentially with private equity consulting firms uh, didn't like the drag of the software investments on the consulting business. So for us, it was a function of um, a strategy that worked outstanding for our clients. Our clients couldn't just take a software product and make it work, but they didn't want to just use uh, build everything from scratch using consultants. So we were very customer focused and had the right strategy for our customers to give them a software tool with the expertise to make that uh, tool workable in their environment, but from an investment perspective, it didn't fit. 
so interesting. I have so many questions because I think, you know, we've got a ton of listeners who are in that half pregnant situation of having a service company, but aspiring to have a product company. And so I, there's just a thousand questions I've got. Before I get there, though, I wanted to ask you a question about the debt instrument. Um, can you describe what sort of debt instrument you use to finance the growth? Yeah. Um, so we, we had, like, I think a lot of companies, uh, one of the first things every company should do uh, is, is set up a, a line of credit against receivables, particularly if their uh, receivables lag the investment in the business. So any consulting firm should have a, um, a line of credit against receivables. Uh, and the traditional um, kind of Silicon Valley bank and, uh, um, uh, you know, equivalents of, of those kind of banks have those kind of instruments. So we had that relatively early on, but that's limiting um, because it really is, is a, uh, it's, it basically doesn't give you any, anything other than just a modest amount of working capital. There's no right. growth capital involved. Uh, <clears throat> we work with a, a firm called Decathlon and they have a very interesting instrument that is um, revenue-based uh, debt financing. Uh, and basically, it, it works like a um, uh, uh, kind of like a balloon note. You basically uh, can borrow a pretty sizable amount, um, and then uh, you pay the loan back as a percentage, a quite small percentage of your revenue. So it really does work as growth capital, and um, and they really fund the business more like a VC. They come in and look both at the at the financials, but also the strategy of the company and the people that make the lending decisions at Decathlon are practitioners. They're not just pure, you know, banking people. Uh, I'm, I'm a huge fan of Decathlon and that, and that model. Um, they were really, really helpful to us. And uh, the, um, you know, while the, uh, the interest rates are, are high, uh, you know, the, every every debt instrument is still a better value than an equity instrument. So, what would what would a typical interest rate be on an instrument like that? Like here we are recording this. I think Prime is somewhere around three and a half or four percent, isn't it? Uh, you know, a secured line of credit. I don't know, a couple of points above that. I mean, we're still in a fairly low interest rate environment. I'm surprised um, if you're a, if you're a company that's as young as we were. Mm -hmm. uh, even the line of credit against receivables has a, a much higher uh, rate of interest, uh, double digit interest rates. Um, and then the, you know, I, I don't think it's fair for me to, to share Decathlon's numbers, but uh, they're, you know, kind of double that. Um, and then uh, depending the, uh, the way their, their model works is, you know, if you, if you pay off the loan early, the interest rates are a little bit higher because they have, limited partners who, you know, if you give them short-term gains, have to pay quite a bit of tax on it. So the longer you hold the note, the lower the interest rate is, uh, even though the interest payments are higher. But um, it, it does, when we first saw it, it was a little bit of a sticker shock. Uh, but yeah. when, again, when you compare it to giving up ownership of your company, <laughs> you know, then it's really, really inexpensive. Uh, and because of the way they, they lend, it's, it is a risk for them. You know, they're, they're, they're loaning money, uh, pretty sizable amounts based on uh, the prospects of your organization being successful. Uh, as compared to traditional banks who take what I think of as virtually no risk, 
I, I know they take risks, but you know, um, you know, we had receivables from, you know, fortune 100 companies that, that we were paying pretty high interest rates on. I, I was, I was frustrated by that. Those were really, really low risk, you know, <laughs> low risk, uh, uh, loans. Um, and yet they still came with what I thought of as, as high interest rates. So when you look at it as a, as a true growth capital investment, the debt I think was, was a great value. Why did you guys want to be a product company? Well, I think, um, you know, consulting is, is, uh, I think of it a little bit like surfing, you know, um, you can catch a great wave, uh, for some period of time, but eventually the wave crests and hits the shore. Uh, and, and you've got to be on to the next thing. And, the the waves are, are, are happening faster. You know, you, you could have been a, um, you know, SAP implementation consultant, uh, in the, late eighties and through the nineties and had a, you know, 10 or 15 year run. Um, but as the cycle times increase, you know, the, the level of two things happen with any complex project that requires advanced consulting of, of the technical consulting we were doing. I could talk a little bit about how it's different now that we're with a much larger organization, but for the kind of firm we were, it was really about technical uh, acumen. And um, we felt that those waves would, would, would come uh, a lot faster. The cycle times would be a lot faster. So uh, we felt like having a, a, a product foundation would be a, a long-term better path to sustainable growth. Isn't there also some risk though, because once you make those investments in a product, it's, it's harder to pivot away from that product. Whereas in consulting, you can kind of, kind of change fairly quickly, no? Well, products evolve. And I think the product that, uh, that we had conceived of and defined, um, you know, would have evolved. All products evolve, right? I mean, we're decades into uh, almost all of the prominent software products and, you know, they've evolved in various ways. So you're right. Um, there, there is a, a risk factor, but I also think that you got to remember, we were focused, about, uh, focused on our customers probably more than anything. And, um, you know, I think our customers were looking for a way to have repeatability to these uh, use cases and these projects. And so if, if and, and they wanted some, most organizations that are, are visionary want to have some of their own capability. They don't want to be dependent uh, purely on external companies to help them with something as strategic is taking care of their customers. So uh, for us, it was really about what our customers wanted. Uh, they wanted a capable, so we, our mindset was, you know, kind of jumpstart the customer, get them used to the product, teach them how to use the tools, uh, and then give them a degree of self-sufficiency. Now, you know, some customers would never be self-sufficient, but, but by giving them that option, it made it a differentiated value proposition for us. That's helpful. So you had built uh, this um, data analytics software. Can I call it that data analytics software that you wrapped consulting around? Yes. Excellent. And by the time you, uh, you actually had, uh, took the business to market, um, sort of just give us a trajectory because when I saw the numbers, I had to look twice (laughs) at how quickly you had grown because I think in it, you know, you started in 2015, how many employees were you at 
by the time 2018 rolled around? Uh, we had, um, I think, uh, around 240. Um, we had uh, something like uh, 70 or 80 in the United States, uh, a couple dozen in Singapore, um, and then uh, a really, really strong um, footprint in India. Were these all full-time Kigentics employees or? Yeah, we had, we had very, few, very few contractors, yeah, mostly full-time employees. Like, how do you onboard 240 people in three years? Like, to me, that just sounds unbelievable. Um, you know, I, I can say that, that you know, uh, you know my, my co-founders all have um, very strong ties to India, uh, and, and I think uh, that's, that's a huge blessing. Um, I think it's very, very difficult to not have uh, an onshore, offshore model, uh, either for software development or for consulting, candidly. Uh, and yet, if, if you don't have personal experience and a personal network in India, it can be uh, very risky and challenging. So um, we were very, very lucky to have uh, my, my co-founders have a strong foundation to build from. Uh, we had some very strong leadership. Um, we also um, built our team in Hyderabad, India, <clears throat> which wasn't quite as, um, uh, as I'd say, saturated or overpenetrated as a place like Bangalore. Uh, and so Hyderabad was, was more of a, I don't want to call it a greenfield opportunity because it clearly had a lot, um, you know, a lot of progress even to the point we were at. But, uh, but I think by picking the right place, uh, having the right people in place, we were able to scale there. And in the United States, it was, uh, we just had people very committed to the company. I mean, I, I love uh, the people that worked for Cogentics, the uh, vast majority of whom currently work for Accenture. Uh, they, they were very committed and, and they leveraged their personal networks. And, um, you know, we were constantly recruiting, constantly hiring. Uh, and once we found the right fit, um, we, we could bring people on. And, and it was great because, you know, for, for technical people uh, in particular, you know, they're obviously motivated by compensation at some level, but that's not the primary motivation. Most, most really talented technical people want to work on wicked cool projects that are challenging them, uh, pushing them, helping them learn. Uh, and, and we were lucky enough to have that kind of quality of, of, uh, uh, of, of project, um, underway. That's helpful. And were you also taking advantage of some of the natural arbitrage between, uh, you know, salaries in, in India versus those in the United States? Was there, uh, I, I don't know what the current salary range, but my sense is that salaries are still lower in India. Were you taking advantage of some of that? kind of natural arbitrage between the two markets? We obviously paid market competitive rates. We were a little bit above. Our goal was to be a little bit above market in both in every country we serve. Mm -hmm. um, you know, our, our philosophy as, as a company was to treat, um, uh, prioritize employees, right? Every, every firm has to decide, are you going to serve the owners, the customers, or the employees? And we made a very conscious decision early on that our, our focus, our priority was going to be our, our employees. Because if you take care of your employees, they'll take care of your customers and then the valuation will follow. Um, some people take a different approach. I understand that. But for us, it was about the employees. So 
uh, we took good care of them um, and they took very, very good care of us. Boyd, beyond, um, beyond uh, you know, slightly higher than market rate salary for the employees, can you give me uh, like a very tactical, specific thing that you did uh, to take care of your employees, to be employee centric versus you know, shareholder or customer centric. What was like, can you give me something kind of tangible? Was it like foosball tables in the office or free beer after work? Like what, like, was there anything like that that you specifically did? You know, we were a, a pretty mature um, company. So yeah, we had a ping pong table and, and we had a lot of fun. Uh, but I'll, I'll give you maybe one of the, the critical examples that mattered more to our most senior employees is we uh, paid for 100% of the healthcare benefits for our employees and 50% for their dependents. And our, our healthcare plan was a, a really, really good plan. And, um, you know, admittedly, the, uh, the younger workers um, neither took advantage of it nor, nor valued it as much. That just tends to be true of younger people. But when you're coming to, to people that are, are, you know, longer in their career and have kids and you know, that really matters. And, um, and it was a very conscious decision to invest that money uh, and, and be, you know, that, that we were well above any metric for our peer group for the quality of our healthcare. Um, we also uh, took, um, you know, very, very good care of our, our employees relative to their immigration status. Uh, so we had some some folks who were uh, doing um, optional practical training off of an F-1 visa that wanted to apply for an H-1B, uh, H-1B uh, employees who wanted to apply for a green card. So we had a good, a good mix of, of immigrants. Uh, I think immigrants are um, incredibly valuable to, to our country. We weren't doing the kind of thing that, that I think is uh, abusive in the sense that there are some organizations that apply for a gazillion H-1Bs, ship people over from India for the ones that get an H-1B and and they don't really uh, plan to be um, here for the long haul. Uh, All of our employees that we were helping through the immigration process were uh, committed to to be American workers for the long haul. And I'm very proud of that. I'm very proud of the immigrants who worked for our company. and, and when you have that passion to stay in the United States and build your life and your family here, then having a company that really takes care of you from an immigration perspective, it matters. So That's I think huge. those are two, two very specific examples. That, those are super uh, illustrative for, for us, and I appreciate you sharing those. So let's get into the actual transaction itself. It's 2018. The four of you guys are looking the way the winds are blowing. And as I understand it, you know, there's a, a raft of companies that are, that are raising a boatload of venture capital to create their own analytics products. Um, you guys are a little bit of a hybrid. You've got a product, but you've also got this consulting wrapper. Um, you come to the realization that you know, maybe it's time to, to fall into the hands, I guess, of somebody else. Uh, maybe take us through, was there a triggering event that made you decide to sell or was there a straw that broke the proverbial camel's back? No, we were executing a strategy. Um, uh, we, we wanted to be at a certain place uh, by the end of 2017. Uh, from a capital perspective and a, a growth perspective. And, and we had decided 
um, probably by the, the end of 16, that if we didn't hit that milestone, then we'd uh, pursue exit options. So it was very planned. It wasn't a um, kind of an emotional or impulsive decision. It was, it was we reached a point uh, that we had planned to reach. And, uh, and when we decided to sell, we actually decided to sell quite at the, uh, toward the end of 17. Uh, and once we made that decision, we started uh, looking to hire a banker and, and enter a process um, when we were still very strong, very healthy, profitable, and growing, uh, as opposed to waiting for some of the capital challenges we faced to begin to devalue the company. At that point, roughly what proportion is, of your revenue is consulting versus uh, product? Um, the vast majority of the revenue was still consulting. Um, although virtually all of our engagements by the second half of 17 were a combination of our software and our consulting. So, so you successfully made the transition to uh, bring the software product to market. Uh, and sell it successfully to the first uh, half dozen customers. Um, and, but from a pure, a, for part of it is revenue recognition, right? When you sell a software subscription, you recognize the revenue rapidly over the period of the subscription. Whereas when you sell consulting work, you recognize the revenue by the milestones of the work output. Um, so some of it was that, but it, uh, still a, a large body of the revenue was consulting. So you go and you hire a, an M&A banker, is that right? That's correct. We interviewed three. Uh, How did you a, pick the one you picked? Um, the, uh, we picked ClearSight Advisors, um, and uh, they were not at all the biggest firm. We looked at a couple of bigger firms. We were too small to look at, you know, the massive M&A firms. But, um, and it was actually quite simple when, when they went and came and did uh, oral presentations to us, uh, we looked for the firm that had the most relevant examples to us. Um, we had one banker that we really loved, um, but when they came in and did examples of their transaction history, they had uh, one that was a lot like us. But their second example they shared with us was a very large company that had raised several hundred million dollars <laughs> you know, for, for, uh, of some sort of, it, I don't think it was just pure sale. It was some sort of, uh, uh, debt financing or something like that. And we're like, okay, well, if that's your second example, <laughs> you know, that's, that's pretty far afield from us. Whereas, uh, uh, clear had, um, all of the examples they gave us were very close to home. Uh, we felt like they understood our business, uh, and, um, we picked right They're They're a fabulous, fabulous firm. So what did they do next? Like an introduction to ClearSight and Gretchen. Um, I think she'd be happy, happy for me to pass that along. They can reach out to me on LinkedIn or something. I, I'm a huge fan of what they did for us. That's helpful. And I'll, at the end, I'll make sure we get you connected up and we'll put that in the show notes as well. Where did, so was Gretchen led the, uh, led the mandate from your perspective at, at ClearSight? Yeah, Gretchen C., she's the uh, managing director. She had a small team with her. Um, we love them all. They were just a fabulous team. Uh, and, um, you know, they were very attentive all the way around. Where did, where did it go from there in terms of, uh, so you, you engage them to, to, what was the next step? Well, they have a process and that's one of the, you know, 
when I talk to other entrepreneurs, um, uh, you know, I think there's a lot of skepticism about bankers. It seems like their fees are high and people wonder what they get. Uh, and, and it's funny in our case that I'm such a, a huge advocate because if you look at our business and our business model, um, you know, Accenture would have been one of the top two or three likely acquirers. And, and I had contacts at Accenture. We didn't, we didn't need uh, ClearSight to, to necessarily find uh, Accenture as a buyer for us. But, um, but the process, they, they have a very clear process. They go through and they, they helped us position our business in a way that a, an acquirer would want to see it. Uh, they gave us access to buyers that uh, we engaged with that we would have never thought to engage with. Uh, some of them we'd never even heard of. Um, and so we just went through their process and trusted them. I, my, my point of view was we hired a banker. They do this for a living, you know, got, let them guide their process. And, and I'd say we got about, um, interestingly, I think say we get about 30 or 40% of the value from ClearSight uh, of finding the buyer and getting to, uh, a, you know, a commitment, uh, an LOI or an MOU or, or yeah, ultimately an MOU, I guess. Um, and then the bulk of the value, the majority of the value, not the bulk, but the majority of the value I felt like we got was post, uh, you know, post having a buyer, how did they help us through the, the process of the sale? They were just utterly invaluable. I want to get to that, but first, how many how many businesses did did you have on on your sort of short list uh, of of folks who who took a, a genuine interest in in the company? Uh, you know, either either gave you an LOI or or, or kind of you, know, you had management meetings with how many how many different companies in addition to Accenture? What uh, was there? I want to say maybe a half dozen got to a very serious discussion point. And how do you, I mean, some people listening to that are going to say, boy, that, that makes me so squeamish to hear six different, you know, companies would know I'm thinking of selling. I'd be revealing all these secrets to, uh, to, to my potential competitors. How do I manage that? What did, how did you guys answer those questions? Uh, you know, you know, I, I have a marketing uh, background from earlier in my career, and, and one of my adages about marketing was uh, nobody really cares about you as much as you think they do. <laughs> right. uh, you know, the goal of marketing is to get them to care. So, but, but, so part of it was that. Like, you know, but also part of it is, is uh, everybody that is involved in this process understands the criticality of discretion. Um, larger organizations firewall off, um, you know, other parts of the organization from knowing that something's even in play. Um, you know, people are just very, you know, the people that, that Gretchen and ClearSight, the Gretchen and Gretchen's team at ClearSight put us in contact with were professional people. So I, I wasn't terribly worried. I mean, we, we, uh, we talked to, to potential acquirers that had competitive offerings to us and we were very comfortable with it. You know, once you decide to, to go down the, go down the path, then, um, you know, I think you'd do yourself as a company a disservice if you try to game it or be too cute. What types of industries were in that, 
long list of, of candidates. Was it, was it all the other consultancies like Accenture or were there other software companies? Like what was the, what was the, yeah, there were very large consulting practices. Um, there were, uh, very large, um, internet cloud service providers that were interested. Uh, there were some interesting companies who had a desire to expand into this space as an adjacent business. So what they, did they different business, but they wanted to have this capability. What um, did they see in you, Boyd, that like, what was the, was the jewel in the crown of your company? Like, what was it that they saw in you that they wanted? I think it's true for, for a lot of the companies that um, anybody looks at is they, they, they look for the, the, the real world examples of what you've done for clients. Uh, certainly in, in, you know, even now to a certain extent, if you, if you look at the range of successful use cases of uh, machine learning and artificial intelligence in large organizations, um, you know, they're, they're not that common. And we had very, very successful projects under our belt with very, very large organizations. As I mentioned, we, we, we tended to tote focus on, on uh, very large companies um, for a lot of reasons. You know, smaller companies uh, don't, don't always have the resources to, to invest in this space. So I think the jewel was the use cases that we had deployed. Out of interest, you mentioned earlier, I kind of asked you, can you give me a real life example? You said, I can't share the names of the companies. Once they're, the buyer is under non-disclosure agreement with you, these sort of six more serious conversations, and they've signed an NDA, are you at that point able to share the name of the use case? Like it was General yeah. Motors or it was Procter & Gamble or whatever? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay. And we, had, we had NDAs with far more companies than we had meetings with. It was well, well for that, that half dozen. It was, can't remember the exact number of NDAs that we had signed, but, but ClearSight wouldn't give anybody anything without an NDA. It, would it have been dozens, like plural, maybe under NDA? Maybe that, maybe as many as 20, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And so for those listening along uh, in the M&A process, one of the first gates that a potential acquirer needs to pass through is signing a non-disclosure agreement or an NDA, which gives them, grants them more than some superficial information about the company. It, you know, you can then see much more detail about the company, but in, in return, you've got to sign an NDA. So that's the first sort of gate of a potential acquirer needs to pass through in order to, uh, to kind of look under the hood in this case. One of the questions I wanted to ask earlier, but I wanted to save time now because I, I think it's fascinating. You know, like I'm old enough to remember back in the old direct marketing days when we used to actually send you know, mail, like credit card, you know, offers and so forth, uh, a modeling sort of, uh, uh, methodology called NLP or next logical product, right? So you, you buy a home and lo and behold, three months later, you get, you know, some life insurance offering because the likelihood that you're going to have a kid within two years of buying your first home is like astronomical. It's like natural. Not, this was years before we talked about quote unquote, big data or AI or machine learning. But of course, those words were very much part of your lexicon. Like I, I took a look at the press release and sure enough, they're, you know, they're there in, in, in the verbiage. How intentional were you about using 
the lexicon of the day. Again, kind of sexy words, lots of buzz around things like AI and machine learning and, and big data. Those are terms that, that people kind of hear a lot and know there's a lot of activity. Were you intentional about using those because you knew they would, they would play well with potential acquirers? I, I, I'd say probably no. I mean, I think we described what we did. Um, it just happened to be what we did was what so many people are interested in. We, we didn't try to, uh, you know, obviously try to put your best foot forward, but, but I, I, we didn't try to do anything uh, too exotic. I mean, one of the things I think that gets frustra frustrating for acquirers is when you, you throw in a bunch of buzzwords and then they strip away the, the veneer and, and there's nothing there. You know, people that do, uh, um, you know, visualization products that suggest they're doing AI when they're really doing visualization. I, I think it's important to use the most specific descriptive language uh, on what you actually do uh, rather than trying to, to um, you know, kind of, throw a little bit of uh, marketing pixie dust on it. Um, the one thing I would say is acquirers, uh, the vast majority of acquirers that we uh, ever talked to were really sophisticated, really smart people. You're, uh, by the way, I'd say the same thing about venture capitalists and private equity firms. I mean, we, we weren't able to come to agreement with any of them, but um, you know, I, I think uh, underestimating these external uh, people is at the peril of the entrepreneur, you know, pe people are going to be able to see through it. And, and you're actually in a hole if you created one perception and then they strip away and look at the data and find a, a different reality. Now, now you're not just, you haven't given yourself any, done any favors. You've actually built, dug a hole for yourself in terms of credibility in the, the, the next steps because now they're questioning everything you say. Of the six kind of more serious conversations, um, how many of them presented uh, a letter of intent or uh, a, member of a memo of understanding, memorandum of understanding? Did you get sort of uh, uh, an LOI from each of the six? No, I mean, part of it was timing. Um, part of it was uh, uh, the fit for us. Um, you know, I think... Uh, I mean, I, I can't, I can't speak highly enough about Accenture, their, their process, their timeline, they were fast, they were aggressive. Um, when they decided that they wanted to move forward with us, they, uh, uh, they, they made a very fair offer. Um, so we had, um, you know, we, we had one firm who gave a, a real lowball offer and was just trying to see if we, they could get us to, uh, panic a little bit. Um, you know, I can't remember at the time now how many, uh, we could have gotten to, but, um, Accenture is very mature in the way they, they do things there. I think a lot of people may not realize that, uh, Accenture has acquired lots and lots of companies over the last few years, developed a strong capability to do it. Um, Accenture's turned into be one of the is turned in now to be the world's largest digital marketing agency. Um, is that right? I had no yeah. idea. Yeah, we bought uh, design companies, marketing agencies. So um, I'm, you know, applied intelligence, which is the kind of artificial intelligence and analytics arm, is part of a larger group called Accenture Digital, which also has uh, Accenture Interactive as part of it. And the interactive uh, uh, practice is our 
digital marketing agency. So that, you know, they, they didn't, they didn't come in trying to save a million dollars or something, you know? So when they made an offer, it was just easy to accept. They were a perfect cultural fit. They were the kind of company that could give us what we said we wanted most, which was an opportunity to be market leaders, to help shape the direction of the industry. Accenture is, is I think, unquestionably in my mind, the market leader in this space. Uh, so they basically took us, took us out. They took us off the table uh, before some of the other people could make a move. How did you value the company in your own mind? The, the four uh, of you as founders clearly had uh, lots of skin in the game personally. Like, what did you think the company was worth? Well, uh, you know, we had, um, I think, a pretty realistic view. Uh, the, yeah, we kind of we, very familiar with the multiples, revenue multiples is is a crude way of kind of valuing a, a company. And uh, uh, consulting firms can range from, from 0.5 to, to 2x multiples of revenue. Uh, and then software companies could be, you know, up to 10x or even more uh, for, for valuations, depending on, you know, growth rates of annual recurring revenue and the, the difference between the long-term value of a client and the cost of customer acquisition and so forth. And what would we, the bottom end of that be, Boyd? Like you, you said, you know, consulting would be 0.5 times top line revenue all the way up to say two times top line revenue. What would the, what would the sort of low end of, of, a, of a software company multiple look like? Uh, the high end being 10x or even more, uh, you know? Probably 5x, I'd say. I don't know. I mean, I, I probably, uh, there are people smarter than I am that know the numbers a lot better, but we knew we'd come, we knew we'd come in, in, in somewhere in between that range. And, yep. uh, and then we also um, trusted ClearSight's advice on, on what the valuations were. And so we knew what a fair offer looked like. Uh, and one of the things I really valued about Accenture was they didn't just take care of, of the owners, but they also uh, made a sizable investment in the employees. So our employees got to participate more and the success of the company, thanks to Accenture, than they could have otherwise just with the uh, number of stock options they had. So to be clear, they, they benefited from the, the actual transaction or they will benefit in the future because they're now Accenture option holders? Both. Okay. Accenture made an investment in our employees as well as obviously the, you know, the opportunities for our employees at a place like Accenture to do really, really interesting work or bigger than we could have provided. How did you handle, because in your own admission, your employee, your employee centric company, you made all the investments in healthcare and so forth. How did you tell the rank and file employee that you had decided to sell to Accenture? You know, it's, it's interesting. It's one of the, um, one of the surprises for us. We, you know, our, our, our com company was so small and very, very tight knit. Um, we kind of thought that um, there was a really, really strong rumor mill already kind of uh, formed. And, um, and so we were actually quite taken aback. We pulled the team in the United States together uh, in, in our headquarters in Schaumburg, just outside of Chicago, um, and, uh, and had the Accenture leadership team uh, with us and basically made an announcement the same day as the press release went out 
you know, you, you, you have to, you have to stage these things very carefully because, um, you know, just because of the sensitivities involved in a transaction. Uh, and we laid out to them a lot of what I've told you. Why, why, why did we sell? What did we think of the opportunity at Accenture? Why was Accenture such a good fit? And I'd, I'd say that, that more of the employees were uh, surprised than I expected. Uh, and that, in retrospect, I, I don't know if there's anything we could have done about that. You know, the, the goal when you go to, you know, into a process like this, you have to keep it discreet. Um, you know, because if it doesn't happen, you don't want your employees to, uh, <laughs> you know, uh, you, you don't want your employees to be distracted by it, right? We had, had a business to run. Uh, so we basically pulled the team together and told them all at once. And when you say they were surprised, how did that manifest itself? Like, what was their reaction? How did you know they were surprised? Well, part of it was um, feedback after the, the initial rollout. Um, we were surprised there were fewer questions, fewer comments. And, and I think one of, one of our employees, uh, she told me, um, you know, it was just a lot to absorb. Uh, and it wasn't a bad thing. It was just a lot to absorb. So, you know, there's, I think you, you know, when you, you go into something like this, uh, taking care of communicating with your employees, both at the time you announce the transaction, but then really a high degree of frequency after that, because it's going to take people time to internalize. I mean, we, we probably didn't have as much of an awareness of, uh, you know, we've been at this for six months almost. We've been deep in the throes of due diligence uh, at multiple levels. You get through some due diligence to get to uh, an LOI, uh, and then you go through a whole different level of due diligence to get to a, uh, an actual purchase agreement. Uh, so we had, we had been in it for so long, it was, it was uh, hard for us to put ourselves in the shoes of our employees who were hearing it for the first time. When you went through the the valuation piece and you're considering offers, um, I wonder if there was any effort uh, to uh, to manipulate. It's not the right word. I'm not suggesting there was anything underhanded or untoward going on, but but clearly there was a massive delta between uh, you know valuing your consulting revenue, you know somewhere between 0.5% of revenue and 2x revenue and the revenue you were deriving from software sales, which was clearly, you know, massive uh, premium. How did you, because I'm assuming that for a client, they would have a, a consulting component to their bill, but they'd also have some element of software. How, was it crystal clear what proportion of your revenue was consulting and versus versus what proportion was software or was there a little room for interpretation there? And how did you handle that if there was? Well, I mean, on one level, it's a completely, com completely crystal clear, right? We had uh, almost every client had a separate services agreement from their software subscription and, and different fees associated with each. But when you click down a, a layer um, and think about the motivation, uh, some some clients were were motivated more by the consulting, and some were motivated more by the software. So it wasn't as readily apparent. Uh, you know, it wasn't as 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 obvious as you think. I mean, the numbers were 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 clear. We were very very disciplined in our accounting. Um, 
And, and by the way, I think for every small company that, that uh, doesn't invest in, you know, very vigorous accounting and, and follow gap principles and all that, you're going to, you know, you're going to suffer later for, for failure to invest now. Um, but the, the intangibles of why that, that was not, uh, is entirely clear. That's helpful. You mentioned Gretchen and the team at ClearSight did a great job or did yeoman's work. Uh, those are my words, not yours. Uh, after the LOI was accepted, before the share purchase agreement was signed during that diligence phase, can you describe what that was like, like the kinds of effort they were putting in, the kinds of things? Because for people who haven't gone through diligence, as you say, it's a whole nother level of scrutiny. I mean, maybe can you, can you illustrate that or describe that? Yeah, well, there were there were only uh, the four of us, the the, the co-founders who were aware of the transaction, and and due diligence is a lot of work, uh, and um, you know, and and ClearSight never shied away from from being part of our team uh, to put the financials or any other of the metrics that Accenture was looking for. Uh, in the context or in the in the format or whatever it was that they needed, uh, and I I just don't know how we we could have done it. Um, you know they were they were very very uh, versatile. Uh, you know they they just really really helped a lot and and you know due diligence. Uh, you know if you get to due diligence with a large organization. Uh, you know, you should be in a position where the uh, the fallout from an LOI through due diligence should be pretty minimal. They, you know, you you'd have you should you know you'd have to find something that was misrepresented or something like that probably. But it's still it's still critical that you you take the the process seriously. Uh, so I think they they did a lot of that work for us. Um, put in many many hours, many many late nights. Uh, and you know, like I said, I don't think we could have done it without them. There's a, um, a lot of people that I've spoken them with have gone through diligence. Uh, there's always that, uh, that moment, you know, maybe it's six weeks or eight weeks in, it feels like the, the, the people on the buy side are, are, you know, the analysts are just asking for data after data after data. And eventually you just have to say, stop, like either you guys want the company or you don't. Did you guys ever get to that point where, you had to put the brakes on and say, enough is enough. We've given you enough data, you know, crap or get off the pot, so to speak. Did you ever get to that point? No. I mean, um, <laughs> we got to the point where we would have loved to have said that, but <laughs> you know, uh, a, a company like Accenture is, is a great company because they, they have proven best practices and, and approaches that, that work. Uh, so I, I don't think we ever <clears throat> expected now they, you know, if I, I've given one point of feedback to, to my, my new colleagues at Accenture is they, they have a little bit of a one size fits all approach. So, so their due diligence process would be very similar for a company five times or even 10 times our size. Uh, and when you have that, there are more knowers, there are more functional experts who can, can help compared to what we, what we had, but, but no, I mean, I think we, we knew that this was, I mean, this was the, the path the company had chosen. It was our, our job to make it work. 
And you're now an employee again, as I understand it. How does it feel to be back in a, in a big company environment? You went from Intel to entrepreneurship and now back to Accenture. How does it feel to be back? Well, Accenture is a very entrepreneurial company. Um, is it? Yeah. You know, they, they, uh, uh, you know, it's, it's, it, you know, it's kind of got its heritage as a, as a partnership, um, you know, and as a partnership, you know, you, you end up having uh, uh, partners, which they now call managing directors of which I'm one uh, have, you know, kind of a broad latitude to go create. Um, so I think that's, similar. Uh, there are other areas that are different. Um, not all of them positive, of course, uh, but many of them positive. You know, one of the things we faced as Cogentics is that people loved our technical capability, but a lot of times the obstacles to success in these kind of projects has nothing to do with technology. Uh, it has to do with, uh, you know, operating models and talent and strategy and, and domain knowledge and, uh, uh, you know, as I mentioned earlier, you know, I, I talked about this idea of riding waves. Um, you know, Accenture's well built to, to ride the waves because they, uh, we, I shouldn't say they, I said we are aligned uh, by industries and we really understand these industries and, and can offer a lot more value than Cogentics could offer. Uh, so it was, um, so it's been, it's been a great, it's been a great experience. Um, uh, it has, you know, uh, for, for, I told our employees kind of early on that you, there will be some downsides, there will be some negatives. Uh, and our goal was to make sure that the positives, the opportunities uh, significantly outweighed the, the challenges or the negatives. And, and I think that's been true for, for not just the four co-founders, but for, for the vast majority of our employees. How did you mark the sale of Cogentix. I mean, you guys came together, you built this juggernaut over three years. I mean, it's unbelievable growth, zero to 240 employees. Um, how did you mark that achievement? <laughs> um, you know, it, it, it's funny. Uh, we, we celebrated with our employees some, uh, you know, but for the, for the four of us, I, I should only speak for myself. I'll let, I could let my colleagues speak to you any other time. Sure. Uh, but, you know, I, I, I've never run a marathon. I'm not a big athlete guy, but I almost have a sense that you, we, we felt kind of like finishing a marathon. You were just too, too exhausted to maybe feel the euphoria at the time that you might have expected when you started out on the journey. Like, oh, wow, when this is all going to be done, we're going to be so excited. And, and it was uh, emotionally, for me at least, a little bit anticlimactic. Um, but you know, as, as time has gone on, uh, we've had a chance to reflect and, and, uh, and maybe, uh, enjoy the achievement of creating something that was worth uh, enough that, uh, an organization like Accenture wanted to buy it. Um, and to, uh, you know, to really kind of, uh, celebrate, uh, what we created with our employees. Uh, so if, at the time though, at the day, the day the transaction closed, it was, it was a little bit like almost more a sense of relief than anything. Do you, do you, and this is more just a personal question for you. I mean, do you, do you crave a break? Do you, do you crave that um, six months to go live somewhere else to not think about work to, 
Um, I mean, do you have that, those yearnings? No, <laughs> no. I mean, I never even, uh, maybe because it wasn't really uh, feasible, but I never, I never thought of that. Um, you know, we had, a. Uh, you know, nor, nor something, I think, I, I think I get bored after a relatively short period of time. So, you know, I like to work. I like what I do. I enjoy dealing with clients. It's been exciting to meet just a range of new people at Accenture. So no, I don't, I don't, I never felt that. Um, you know, I, I don't, you know, it was, a, it was a great, a great journey. I mean, I think the one thing you do end up thinking is, you know, if I was ever in a position to, to start another company, um, there's so many things. I think we, we did really, really well, but there's so many things that you can't help but think I could have done better. You know, you, like what? Oh, I, I, we don't have time to get into it, but um, it's, it's, uh, it, that's probably one of the things that, that makes uh, for serial entrepreneurs is this knowledge that every, every step, uh, even a success or a failure, uh, is a is a learning journey, and and you kind of uh, have some some level of desire at some point in the future to apply that learning. Leave, leave us with one, even if it's super tactical, that you might do differently if you had to do all over again. I think um, we kept uh, for a lot of reasons. We kept our 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 um, control over profitability at a relatively high level. So for a consulting firm, we didn't have super rigorous timekeeping and, and therefore we lacked some of the visibility I, I would have liked to have had in, in um, uh, you know, understanding the profitability by client, by resource, and look for ways to improve that. That's just, that's kind of one specific example that was unique to, to us. Uh, I feel like early on, um, you know, I'd done a stint at a startup and, and had a lot of big company experience and you have to get a sense of what level of process uh, is relevant to uh, a small company. You have to have the right amount. You can't have none, but you can't have the kind of process you might have with a, with a big company. I feel like I have a far better feel for that, um, you know. Uh, we uh, <clears throat> entered Southeast Asia and did a lot of business uh, in Indonesia, and that turned out to be uh, very challenging. I, I think if, if I had had it to do over again, I might have been a little bit more cautious or respectful of doing business in a country like Indonesia. So that, that's just a kind of a, a handful of examples you, you learn uh, from, from doing. And... Um, and it's fun. I mean, you have to get used to the fact that uh, when, when you're in a startup environment, uh, you know, to be successful, you, you've kind of got to be, you know, less confident than you're used to at a lot of different things. You know, you know it's funny. It, it just personally, it's one of the reasons I'm so passionate about people actually getting a business sold under their belt, because it's the only way you get to apply all the lessons you learned the first time is to actually sell one and go do it again. Uh, but if you just, you know, you, you stay with one business for 30, 40 years, you never get a chance to 
you, you never get the do-over, the mulligan, so to speak. So I, I appreciate you sharing those. Boyd, you mentioned in the beginning that you might be willing to uh, entertain LinkedIn requests or is there a place that people can reach out and, and either learn about you or the Applied uh, Intelligence Division at Accenture? What's the best way for people to reach out? Well, certainly to learn about Accenture, um, you go to Accenture.com and, and, uh, and you can take a look at Applied Intelligence and look at our offerings. Uh, you know, relative to me personally, if uh, people want to reach out on LinkedIn and, um, you know, I think if you just uh, uh, Googled uh, Boyd Davis Accenture uh, or, or searched on LinkedIn for Boyd Davis Accenture, you'd find me. And, um, you know, I tend to, uh, I, I don't view LinkedIn as, uh, uh, you know, kind of a, I'm, I'm very selective who I, I take in my personal social media, but for LinkedIn as a professional contact, I, I tend to view that as, as an opportunity to cast a broader net and, and have a broader network. So I'm happy to, uh, uh, to accept connections on, on LinkedIn. And, and then if people, like I said, have a desire for, uh, uh, you know, introductions to ClearSight or, or anything like that, you can, I'm sure ClearSight's uh, online. I didn't find them online, but I'm sure they're on online. You could, you could probably go to their website, but I'm also happy to make an introduction for, uh, for Gretchen if, if that would be helpful to people. Well, that's very generous. Boyd, I really appreciate you spending the time with us today. You've shared a tremendous amount of wisdom and I'm, I'm grateful for you doing that. Uh, I enjoyed it. I enjoyed it. I hope it was helpful to your, uh, to your audience. And uh, uh, you know, if there's any, anything I can do for, uh, for you, your audience or something, uh, reach out. I don't, can't be certain I'll be able to help, but. Uh, you know, one of the things that's, I think, super gratifying about the startup world that I found compared to the large corporate environment is that um, people want to help. You know, they, they, they never know when you help somebody today that turns out to, to end up at a different company or it could become an acquirer, an investor, uh, an employee, uh, a hirer, you know, uh, all sorts, right? So I, I think it, it's, I've, I've really, really been gratified by the uh, the experience of meeting people in the startup community and seeing uh, how in general um, it's it's not a cutthroat world people people would love for for each other to be successful and I, that's certainly my feeling so I I'm I'm glad to have had some time to share uh, my perspective with your audience. Well said. Thanks for joining us, Boyd. All right. Thank you much. Bye bye. Thanks for listening to Built to Sell Radio with John Warlow. For complete show notes with links to additional resources, visit builttosell.com slash blog. John is the founder of the Value Builder System. To find out how to improve the value of your business by 71%, visit valuebuildersystem.com. John is also the author of Built to Sell, creating a business that can thrive without you, and the automatic customer, creating a subscription business in any industry. Connect with John at Facebook.com slash Built to Sell or on Twitter at John Warlow, W-A-R-R-I-L-L-O-W. Thanks for listening.